Open our minds and our hearts to it. To your Holy Spirit as he uses your word to convict and to motivate, to encourage us to both biblical thinking and godly living. Uh, Lord, may there be a a so what, an implication, a, a consequence to everything that we learn so that our heads are not just filled with knowledge without our hearts overflowing with a desire to please you and in thought and in word and in deed. Uh, Lord, help me to teach today and help the hearers to discern and to take to heart uh, what is good and what is right. And help us all to hear, with ears to hear, what the Spirit has said to the churches. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm glad we, I didn't know we were going to get that, but I'm glad we had a spillover uh, Resurrection Sunday hymn because this is a spillover Resurrection Sunday sermon. Not done talking about the resurrection. The New Testament consistently teaches that the resurrection of believers is a future event to occur at the return of Christ to the earth. Now when I say that, maybe you can see why I prayed like I did. That certainly sounds to me like one of those bits of biblical knowledge, you know, one of those fine points of theology whose implications for what is it, you know, for the relevance to my life, you know, what's it, okay, that's fine, but what what does it mean for anything, the way I think or what I say or what I do? But listen, I hope and I have prayed that you will see here, before you leave here today, that, that you'll see that there are implications for how we live, that this isn't, uh, the, the fact that the resurrection uh, is, is a future event that will occur when the Lord returns to the earth, that that's not just a how many angels can dance on the head of a pin sort of thing that you know medieval theologians concern themselves with for what reason, who in the world knows. You know, it, it's not that, that it's... Uh, that it has real relevance for how we think and how we live as Christians every day. But, but first, just to establish the point that this is what the New Testament teaches, that the resurrection of believers is a future event that will occur and won't occur until Christ returns to the earth. We, we had a hint of that last week uh, when we considered... Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of the, of the resurrection. We talked about that a little bit, 1 Corinthians 15. The f- first fruits, calling Jesus the first, Jesus' resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection to come at a, at a later time. It's like the first fruits is like the first part of a harvest. You know, when you plant your gardens, those first a couple of tomatoes, you know, first you, you get uh, those first few tomatoes that you get. Well, it's a sign and it's a promise. There's, the bumper crop is coming. You know, you, you treasure those first ones, but there's a, there's a whole bunch more coming after that, bushels of them, bushels of them. And by speaking of the resurrection this way, Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection, it ties Jesus' resurrection to the, to the part that's coming, to the later harvest that's coming with a with the future resurrection of all those who have been made Christ, been made a part of God's family, been grafted in, been adopted, sons and daughters by adoption. So it's the same thing. It started already. The harvest started with Christ's resurrection. 
but the great part is still coming and it hasn't happened yet and it won't happen until Christ returns to the to the earth and when will that greater part of the harvest happen you know there's no mystery about this if you believe the Bible if you you know if you just take what the Bible teaches about this this is not obscure this is there's no great mystery about this. The New Testament is very clear about when that second part or that great harvest of resurrection, when it's going to come. 1 Corinthians 15. When did we get the verses up? First, yes, okay, great. 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died, they've fallen asleep being a euphemism for having died the idea by the way in the sleep we'll talk about this some next week but not soul sleep not really sleeping but the temporary nature of it the temporary nature of it is the is the idea of this have fallen asleep but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. It's already happened. Then, at his coming. You see that, of course, right? It's very clear, isn't it? Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So you have two ideas in there that both point in the same, in the same direction. So the, it's a future event, the resurrection of all who belong to Christ is a future event that to take, that's to take place at his return, right? At his coming. That's one idea. And we also read that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy. Well, currently, in case you haven't noticed, but I know you have, death is not destroyed. Death is not destroyed. It's active. It's, not, it's relentless. It's, it, it lays its claim on all flesh human and otherwise. You know, modern man, modern medicine, we've made great strides in what we call life expectancy. But you know what? We haven't made a dent in death expectancy. You, you, every person would still be wise to consider this, that, you know, that we, we, should, we should expect death. Our expectation of death is no less then those who lived in primitive times, you know, when they didn't have the medicine we have, we didn't have the life expectancy we have, you know, we didn't have any of these things. And, and, you know, I've, I've told people before, there's never been a great, better time in history to be sick because they can do things for you now that, you know, I, mean, I wonder how many people right here, you know, in a, if they had lived 50 or 100 years earlier would have already been gone from something they had and were able to get, able to recover from. But the expectancy of death for us is the same as people who lived in the Middle Ages or people who lived before that. It's the same. 
Death is not destroyed. It's not destroyed at all. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ before the, the like the first fruits of that greater uh, resurrection to come is a, is a harbinger of, of death's ultimate defeat and undoing, but it remains something future to us now. Because Jesus is not returned. At his coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. It remains, it remains future to it remains future to every person outside of Christ himself. Resurrection, in the way that the New Testament speaks of it, is a future event even to those who have died in the Lord. Even to them. With the Lord in heaven, yes. Resurrected? No. Another passage, also still in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Perishable body, bodies with a shelf life. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, or once again, die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's when, right, isn't it? That's when it will happen, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Once again, we have an indication of when this takes place, this resurrection. It's going to take place at the last trumpet, which is another way of saying at the return of Christ. Let me show you a passage where, you, where it's clear that at the last trumpet is at the return of Christ. It's, it's really even more clear in this, verse, uh, this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. You're getting the idea by now, right? Those who have died, those believers who have passed, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we do, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left until when? Until the coming of the Lord. You see how often this is taught over and over and over and over again. We who remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed in resurrection, by the way, those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. There's our trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. When? When Christ returns. At the last trumpet, 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So there you have them put together. The trumpet, the coming of the Lord, his descent from heaven to the earth. And what happens then? Those who have died in Christ, those believers who have died, will rise first. And by the way, where we are in history, you know where we are now, so many years after this was written, and who knows, you know, Paul even speaks of himself as we who are living, right? But he's not among the living. He'll be, he's among those who have died now. And so how many people are we talking about? Even the least theologically generous among us would have to, we'd put it in the millions, wouldn't we? Millions of souls who have died in the Lord, they will rise first when the last trumpet at the descent of the Lord to the earth, when he comes back, then we who are alive, who are left, will also experience this transformation of resurrection, of our transformation of our lowly bodies, of our language, Philippians 3, the, the, the transformation of our lowly bodies into conformity with Christ's glorious resurrection body. Being, and in effect, being resurrected without ever having died. Those who are living at that time. But still, the resurrection of the dead and the living is seen as a, an event that remains future to us now and even future to those who are with the Lord now. This is... This is why I've always been careful in the way that I've quoted the verses near the end of this chapter, and we're going to look at these as well. At the funeral, 1 Corinthians 15, at the funeral of a, uh, of a Christian, it says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Well, you hear that graveside a lot. Have you been to, I may have been to more funerals than you have, but you hear that at graveside a lot. The, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. The perishable must put on the imperishable does not mean at graveside that the one who has died has already put on the imperishable because it's about resurrection. And this mortal body must put on immortality does not mean that that has already happened for the one who has died. These phrases mean that if we are ever to take up our place and fulfill our roles in God's ultimate future for the earth and his creation in his never-ending never kingdom, then our perishable bodies must put on the imperishable. Our mortal bodies must put on immortality. We can't go in the bodies we're in. We can't live in that world in these bodies as they, as they are. And when, verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, pick it up again. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then, boy, that's a big word, then. Especially when you're standing graveside. 
then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There, there are preachers who seem to assume that those who have died have already put on the imperishable. All right, this perishable body is gone. It's there in front of us, maybe. And they have put on, they've moved on, and they put on the imperishable. The more, they've shuffled off this mortal coil, and they have put on immortality. And if those things have already happened, then death has already been swallowed up in victory. It's already lost its sting for the Christian. And so they say it has no sting for us. There's no victory for us. It's been defeated. And I'm, and I'm afraid sometimes they, they even come close to, to, to me to scolding the mourners who clearly feel death stink and, and who might be looking at death's victory in a, in, a, in a casket or in an urn. They're looking at it. They know what's in there. It seems truer to the biblical text to me to not to say, oh no, it, death has no victory. Death has no victory here among us. Death has no sting. It seems clear or really more accurate and better to hold out, really what the Bible does here is hold out the hope of a future time when death's victory will be swallowed up in Christ's victory over the grave. It's coming. It's coming. Because Christ is risen from the dead. And this is the, this is the promise. There's going to be a day. It's not today. But there's going to be a day when death's sting will be gone. And there's going to be a time and there's going to be a day when death's victory will be reversed. And that's why I think we still grieve our dead but not like those who have no hope. We grieve as those who have a hope. And the hope is a balm on the grief. It's a help. It soothes our grief. It doesn't erase it. Even Jesus stood, at the, stood before the tomb of his friend Lazarus and wept. Knowing what he was going to do in a minute. We grieve as those who have hope because we hope in the promise of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, in our, in our Greenfield Bible study, I've, I've been walking through uh, John, the book of John, chapter by chapter. This past chapter, we were in John chapter 6. And, and on the heels of spending so much time in 1 Corinthians like we have been, and really on the heels of Resurrection Sunday last week and you know, the, just the whole theme of, of, of that. Uh, I was struck by something that Jesus says over and over again in, in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is the bread of life chapter. That's the sermon that uh, cost him a lot of followers. He said some hard things. But he said, this is the bread of life chapter, John chapter 6. And see if you can pick this up, what kind of presented itself to me as I'm thinking about this topic. And, and it's going to be obvious to you. I picked out four verses from John chapter 6. John 6, 39. First, and this is the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking, of course. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Look at the next verse. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A few verses later, 644. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You keep you picking it up? <laughs> I know you are. It's 54, 10 verses later. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood... Oh, that's the one that cost him a lot of followers. This is getting too weird. Right? But you know what he means. You know what he means. Whoever feeds in my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when does Jesus expect the resurrection of all who believe in him, which is, that's the, you know, eating, eating my flesh, drinking my blood, that's the meaning, believing when does he expect that resurrection to occur? Not on their last day. <laughs> on the last day. The last day. The day when the current age passes and, the, and a new age begins. So it's absolutely clear that the resurrection, as the Bible considers it, is an event that has begun with Christ's resurrection, but whose grand completion still awaits. There's one person presently in heaven for whom the glory of resurrection is a present reality experience. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. The rest are waiting for the completion of what Christ obtained for them by his death and resurrection. Now listen, I'm sure they all agree with the Apostle Paul that their present estate with the Lord in heaven is better than the one they left behind. I'm sure they all agree with apostle, the apostle about that, who expected that to be the case. I desire to bar, depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. They have a, they have a fellowship with the Lord. They, they have a personal and intimate fellowship with the Lord that you long for now if you're in Christ. I don't think they'd go back to the, the level of, you know, what, what you and I have. Even, even the most spiritually mature of under those are the people you think are they're close to the Lord. They have, they have that. that. Their struggle with sin being over. Sin's leverage against their souls through sinful flesh having been destroyed because the sinful flesh has been destroyed. Nobody misses their battle with doubt perhaps. Nobody misses their trials of faith. Nobody misses their diseases, their handicaps, their weaknesses, the brokenness in their persons, the brokenness in their personalities. Nobody misses dealing with sinners day in, day out. But there's something more coming for them there's something more coming for them that they still await. The redemption of their bodies. The resurrection in likeness with Christ's body is still coming for them. The dead in Christ will rise first 
at his coming at the last trumpet. So why, why does God make them wait? Why not give them their resurrection bodies now? Why not let the saints in heaven share fully and share presently in Christ's resurrection? I, th I think there's a clue in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, you know, speaking most of Old Testament saints, Noah and Abraham and Moses, these great, and some unknown people, some we can't even put names to, the, the great hall of fame of faith. Uh, Hebrews 11.39, yes. And all these, though commanded through their faith, commanded to God through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God is not saving, you could take it down now. God is not saving individuals. Here, here's the clue. God is not saving individuals so much as he is saving a people for himself. A company of worshipers. A people for his own possession. In his timing of things, God is making it absolutely clear that we are in this together we are in Christ's body together, uh, God's household together, his household of faith. You were God's building, God's field. You were the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and really, what could make that clearer, or at least this is something that does, than not, listen, not letting the Apostle Paul get his full payment, his full possession of salvation until you get yours. Paul waits. Peter waits. Stephen waits. Barnabas. We can go beyond those. Augustine. Luther. Spurgeon. All of them those who have gone before you in the Lord in your own family. Wait. That apart from us or apart from you, they should not be made perfect. God is not going to let me receive the fullness of my salvation, everything that salvation means for me, until you receive yours. And who knows when the Lord returns? Those who come after us receive theirs. The marriage supper won't start until the last place is filled. I don't know. Maybe you grew up in one of those households where one of the ways they emphasize family, the importance of it, is nobody eats until everybody's there. That's what's going on here. That's what God's doing with the resurrection of his people, his family, on the last day. And when, the re when it happens like that, when the resurrection comes, our focus is not going to be so much on ourselves as individuals, but the wonder and the glory that we have been made a part 
of God's redeemed people. Living stones that make up a spiritual temple. You know, we, we leave this world individually, tend to. We're going to enter the next one as one people together. We, we like to fantasize sometimes about how we'll talk and the questions we'll ask, things we'll talk about, and the time to come. You know, we think about that. You know, in the, in the, uh, in the God's future, in the capital F future, in the, in the eternal state, what, how are we going to talk? What are we going to say? What are we going to ask? Well, here's something we'll never ask anyone else. How long have you been resurrected? <laughs> never. Because we all have the same day one. We'll all have the same birthday when it comes to resurrection life. The people of God as a people, as a family, as a company that redeemed is just, it's far more important to God than we, than we can even imagine. If we so private, especially in our age, so privatized, so individualized the Christian life as if it were all about each of us individually but not about all of us together, and it's about us. And the us includes the saints who have gone before. So what, what's the so what? Let me, let me, you know, this is, so you don't think it's just some, okay, all right, fine, you know, the resurrection, the future events, all of it. What's the so what? Well, one of them I've already started to talking about, the importance of the people of God in our lives, being part of redeemed people. Jesus said, I will build my church. Ephesians 5. Now, set aside the first part now. Just think about the husbands and wives. Now, think about that. Just think about what he's comparing husbands and wives to. Husbands, love your wives. All right, set that apart. <laughs> Concentrate on what the passage is about Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Don't end, you're you're going to lose something if you individualize that and privatize it. If you, if you read, as Christ loved me and gave himself for me, that he might sanctify me, having cleansed me by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present me to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. That's true. But you're taking something away from the passage. It's us. It, I, I'm not going to flog the faithful here, but given the, the New Testament's emphasis on the church, you know what flogging the faithful is, you know, when attendance is down and, you know, and the preacher scolds everybody who's there for the people who are not there. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, but the, 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 given the New Testament's emphasis on the church, it is an absolute wonder that so many Christians can hardly see the point of being a part of the life of a body of believers, and, they, and some are not at all, and they feel just fine about their private relationship with the Lord. But li listen, most of the New Testament is addressed to communities of believers, right? Churches. Most of them. 
There's some to Timothy, to an end of the Titus, but most to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Galatia, to the churches in, Ep in, in Ephesus. And, and as a consequence of that, most of the New Testament commands, the, the, the commands on us as believers, cannot be obeyed outside the context of being a part of the life of a body of believers. Love one another, forgive one another, forbear, which means put up with one another. Worship the Lord together, maintain the unity of the body, build one another up, encourage one another. It's, you can't do that without being a part of a, a body, a believers, a family. But the church is so important to God that he's not going to bring the completion of our, our salvation in Christ to anyone in, that, in the church until he brings it to everyone. Well, second so what? The second so what? The resurrection points us beyond, because of the nature of the resurrection, it points us beyond going to heaven when we die to something beyond that. It points us to the a fullness of human life in God's kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, when you think about it, we're just leaving the passages we read. Isn't it amazing how much the New Testament looks forward to the resurrection and the new heavens and new earth and how little it says to us about what's in the interim? We'll talk about the interim next week. You know, what's, you know what's, what is the interim? So the resurrection really points us beyond heaven, doesn't it? It points us to when Jesus comes back from heaven and he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Are they going to be disappointed in that, being jerked out of their mansions or their rooms? They, they were in heaven. No, no, don't get out of heaven. Apparently not. They're apparently they won't be disappointed. Wait, this is terrible. He's bringing us from heaven to the earth. We don't want to go back there. So set aside, you know, the, the resurrection points us beyond, beyond heaven to that which comes after. So listen, here's the so what. Set aside your nagging doubts if you have them, your secret worries about an eternal church service in heaven, in the sky, Lord, in the sky. That amazing grace worship service that's not even halfway over at 10,000 years. And we've been there 10,000 years. No less days. The, uh, the, the, uh, the worship service that lasts forever and what are we going to do when or if you're an older, you know, if you happen to be, there's not many of these folks around, but if you're still thinking about clouds and harps and... Really? I, just, I reminded one of my favorite passages from Huck Finn where Huck is speaking to his Christian aunt, I think. I think it's an aunt. And he says, she told me all about the good place and how about... All a body would have to do is sit around and sing. So I didn't think much about it. 
I asked her if she thought Tom Sawyer would be there, and she said, not by a far sight. <laughs> he says, I was glad about that because I wanted me and him to be together. <laughs> this, the great Christian hope as it is in the New Testament is not going to heaven when you die. As, as important as it is, it's where I want to go. <laughs> but it points to the great Christian hope is something beyond that. When Christ returns to the earth and we all together receive the fullness of salvation, which is the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. Heaven is like the part of the airport where only ticketed passengers can go. You know, that way it is now. And you, we, we wave goodbye to our loved ones, right? And they go around the corner and we can't see them anymore. We don't see them. We might even shed a tear, right? They're gone. But they haven't gone to live in the airport forever. <laughs> They're coming back. And that's what we're looking forward to. And, and if our time comes before they come back, we'll go to that part of the airport too and we'll come back with them. Now to be sure, I'm convinced it's not going to be like McGee Tyson. And, and in fact, it's going to make Charlotte or Atlanta or one of those other great airports look like McGee Tyson. It's a place where all our, there's rest and their needs are met. And, uh, and all of that, but we're coming back to a world that ha will have been set free from its corruption into the freedom of the fully redeemed, resurrected children of God. And listen, the eternal life that the, that the Bible holds out to you is not just up there in the heavens, parks, clouds, worship service, whatever. It is filled, it's a new heaven, new earth, with resurrection and resurrection bodies and there's coming and going and there's eating, there's drinking, there's multi-generational fellowship, there is worship, there is creative work, satisfying work, serving in God's ever-expanding kingdom like we were meant to do from the very beginning until things got fouled up. Final so what? Last one. And it's related. It's related. The promise of resurrection, as it is, this future event, feeds our longing for the return of Christ. And like I said, the great Christian hope, the great Christian hope, the big one, the big one, is not, boy, I can't wait to die and go to heaven. <laughs> That's not it. Once again, as important as that is, to know where you're going when you die. That's not the ultimate. What's the ultimate Christian hope? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's it. And our longing for Christ's return is a measure of spiritual maturity. We're, we're commanded to, to. Here's a quote, Titus 2. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
They're, we long for Christ's return. And it's not without self-interest, though, is it? Because when he returns, you get, I get, Paul gets, Spurgeon gets, all who are in Christ, the people in your family who have died in Christ. We get the fullness of salvation. Who will, Philippians 3, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The, the Anglican theologian N.T. Wright, he compares the relationship of our present bodies to what they'll be in resurrection, to how we compare people who have declined a lot and suffered uh, physical and mental decline. We might go to the nursing home and we say, uh, he's, a, he's a shadow of his former self. He's a shell. She's a shell of what, of her true self. And, she, and they are, you know, they, they are. So he, he makes the comparison, the resurrection, you in resurrection, what you will be in resurrection, you're a shell of that now. You're, you're a shadow of that now. It's, you know, it's not, that resurrection is not just getting your 20 or 30 year old body back. It's getting, it's being the you, it's getting the body that you would have had if you had not been born a sinner into a fallen and corrupt and dying world. The you that was meant to be but never was yet. If you're in Christ, there's a yet. The last statement of Jesus, the risen Jesus in the New Testament is, is this. Second to last verse. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And you know what? We say, we respond right along with Apostle John. You know what he says? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, deepen our desire for your return, for the fullness of our salvation for ourselves and all who are in Christ, even those who have gone before us. Strengthen our hope in an eternal future that is not worthy to be compared either to our suffering or our joys in this fallen world of sin and death. Deepen our appreciation and love for your church, which you've made us a part of, this, this great body of people that you have made a people of your own possession, for which you gave your son and for which he gave us very life. And Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in his holy name. Amen.